I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit AbyssBattery.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. For more than 100 years, pheasant hunting has been a storied South Dakota tradition. Now for the next century, South Dakota is focused on expanding pheasant hunting's horizons, welcoming more sportswomen to the field, giving them a greater voice in the hunting community. That's a legacy to stand the tests of time. Want a shot at free gear and even greater adventure? Enter for a chance to win DSG outerwear gear in the hunt of a lifetime with Melissa Bachman of the Sportsman Channel. Learn more at huntthegreatestsd.com slash DSG. everybody welcome back to another episode of woods and waters project podcast i am i'm always excited for our guests every single time uh but this has been something that i put out there to the world asking to talk to someone into falconry and i was so excited to connect with albert wells who we have on the podcast today and this has just been something that i have i don't have like any exposure to I follow a ton of falconry, like people on TikTok and Instagram and different social media, like channels, because I just find it really cool. And it's just, I've never been exposed to it. So Albert's here to help answer my questions and your questions and tell us a little bit about himself and his journey with it. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Oh, it's great to be talking with you. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it. I put cologne on. My wife said, what are you doing? I said, well, I, you know, it's important. I, I, I got to put. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, it helps to like be, and, and can you see me right now on video? We're on Zoom right now for everyone listening. Can you see me on video? I can, I can. <laughs> you can? Oh no, okay. I so uh usually I am a little bit more put together when I record my podcast even though I don't use a ton of the video um but right now I'm a total like I look like a I look like a bum so <laughs> but oh, I think... it's season. <laughs> yeah yeah it's like and you know I work from home most of the time and um but it does help me to like focus and get more done if I'm like a little bit more put together but I'm kind of a <laughs> kind of slumming it today um but so excited for that you that you're here. And when we connect, when we connected, you so before you and I hit record, it like 
I didn't even do this on purpose. Like when I did, when I put the post out there and was sharing it about, Hey, I really want to have someone who does falconry on the podcast. Um, I, I did not expect for you to be from like 20 minutes from where I live and yeah. let alone be in Iowa. Um, that is so awesome to me. And like you and I were saying, it's crazy how you can live so close to people, even in a small town, small state, like where we are and have things in common like that and have no idea the other person exists. It's wild. Like that's, that's just so crazy. Yeah. And it's so close. I mean, like the two towns are just no distance from each other. So yeah, yeah. I was, I was surprised that, you know, I thought, I mean, a lot of this kind of stuff, like, you know, California has 30 million people or something. So, so much more uh, media and stuff comes out of there. That's what I was kind of expecting. And I looked and I was like, what the heck right there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I, uh, I, you know, even the, I mean, we've uh, no doubt, you know, like past the road. Hope I lost you. Can you hear me? Yep. I got you back now. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. We both live in super small towns that don't have very good internet. So I apologize yeah. for cutting in and out uh, today. But yeah, it, it is so it is so crazy how small of a world we live in. And but at the same time, like how you have no idea, like the people around you. And that's why I love I love this, because I think people are, I think people are fascinating. And um, I think it. I love Iowa yeah. but my whole life. I have had most of my friends, like even the ones who stayed here always complain about how boring Iowa is and how there's nothing to do here and people aren't interesting here. And I like, I don't believe that at all. No. And we, when we moved here from California, you know, my kids, uh, my oldest was 12 and they were all, all on down to like two, three years old and nobody was too sure about moving to Iowa, you know, and I was just, I was just sure of it. You know, I made some, Let's just give myself the benefit of the doubt. I've made questionable decisions in my life, but this was a great one. Moving to Iowa was a fantastic decision. Um, and, you know, it wasn't even like a whole year later. And the kids, you know, I, I was like, okay, we're coming up on one year anniversary. Was this a good idea? We were at dinner and they all just kind of put their heads down and mumbled because they knew it was, dad was right. It was a good idea. Oh, I'm glad they liked it too. Because yeah. that would be such a culture shock from... Um, not even just culture shock, but, you know, weather and every, everything from California to Iowa would be so different. Yeah. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah. So and they get, get a little bit clouded or nostalgic every now and then like California, you know, everything's so much better in California, but you know, the, the, the truth is it, it's crazy out there. You don't know your neighbors, your own neighbors, you know, cause everybody's gone at four in the morning to commute into the city and home at eight o'clock. So you didn't have friends. Kids weren't allowed to stay at the night at anybody's house because we don't know anybody. Yeah. And, um, you know, that kind of, the, you give up a lot leaving California or any big population center, but um, it, you sure do gain a lot just having a small town where everybody knows everybody. We love it. I yeah. love it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, um, I can't imagine going from California to here because even me, I've only lived in my small town. You know, I'm from Eastern Iowa. Everywhere I've lived has really been a small town. But um, 
currently I live in the smallest town that I've lived in. And there is a big, there is a big difference. Um, and it does take a, it does take some getting used to, um, just having to drive half an hour one way to get to whatever I need to get to, you know, um, or just, and I love, I love where I live and we know our neighbors and I know, I know all the people who work at the Dollar General, at the Casey's gas station. Yeah, Uh, Casey's gas station, that's a special relationship with the Casey's workers. Like, that's something you cultivate and care for. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, like I have, they have nicknames for me. Um, They know, like, they ask me questions. They know a little bit about my life, you know, like, it's just, it's, uh, I remember the first two weeks of living in the small town I live in, I, I had never experienced, um, everywhere I went when I moved here, everyone would stare at me all the time and like in a really like strange way. And I thought I was being paranoid at first. Um, but it would be at like Casey's, like it was always at the Casey's gas station. Um, every single person would stare, 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 stare. And now they don't really do that. And I really think they were just trying to figure out who I was. I, you know, in different County plates and whatever. Um, and now nobody does that. And like, I don't even, there's so many people, I don't even know who they are, but they make a point to say hi to me or smile at me because we see each other at Casey's every single day. <laughs> so, you know, it's just different. One of the biggest things for us was after living here for like a full year. And we had four kids in school at that time. So we, this town is a thousand people. That's, I mean, it's a thousand people. So you can know just about everybody in town. And we got to know a lot of people because of the kids being in, in sports and school things. But um, after like a year, sometimes we have a grocery store in town and we'd go, well, let's run to the grocery store then and kind of almost sometimes keep our fingers crossed that we didn't have to stop to say hi too many times, you know, because it's like we're running late or, you know, behind the eight ball, there's a school play coming up and we really got to get this done. And then you got, you know, you stop and say hi. And before you know it, you see four or five people in there and 20 minutes is gone. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> that is so true. So, yeah. so true. And um, I guess, so to like get into some of this too, could you, well, first, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and a little bit about yourself before I start hammering you with questions? Okay. Well, um, yeah, Albert Wells, I moved here from California 10 years ago, maybe. Um, and I've always been into outdoors um I've always had to you know I've never been one much for hiking or anything I had to have more of a reason to be outside um but I've always been into outdoors and I don't I'm I'm a person who doesn't do well when I'm stuck in for inside for any length of time um so I've all I've I've moved from hobby to hobby I mean I've had a few different things that I do outdoors from oh bass fishing golf uh hunting out west weird um i mean even for a while i was gold panning only because it was a reason to be outside i did yeah you know and i was i didn't live too far from gold country in california so i was you know i was like well i'd sure like to go out and do something today so i'll go you know i went down and i got the pan and then 
you know, that turned into go down and get the little tiny sluice box and go get this. And pretty soon I was just like a walking junkyard along the river. And I thought, okay, this <laughs> is ridiculous. But so did you find any like substantial people? Yeah, I've always had to have a reason to be out. Never. <laughs> Never. <laughs> but I didn't put a whole lot of effort into that. I saw a whole lot of cool stuff, but never much gold. You know, it was, awesome. it was about just being outside and being cold and twisting my ankle and wondering <laughs> what the heck. I love it. And so, how did you? Okay. So, we have you on here today to talk about your experience and like journey with falconry and ask you some questions how did you get yeah. in, into that and like wh where did that come from for you and also like how long have you been doing it you know where are you kind of where are you kind of at with things okay well it started when when I first moved here to Iowa it wasn't I had pigeons I had had pigeons before when I was younger just like barn pigeons but when I moved to Iowa, I needed a reason to be outside. I mean, it was my first winter here. So anyways, I got some pigeons and there's, these were a performance type of pigeons. The pigeons I had, uh, they were bred to, they're called high flyers. They're bred to fly high. I had a little altimeter and I clocked 2,700 feet one time on my bird. But um, when you're around pigeons, you're gonna run into a falconer if there's falconers around, you know, cause Pigeons and falcons kind of go hand in hand for training and whatnot, um, and for food. So I had heard of falconry before, but that was always, you know, like I had pigeons for a long time here in Iowa, four or five years. And so that was always in the back of my mind. I, I knew a couple guys, even like online, who had pigeons. They were raising them, showing pigeons and everything, but they had hawks also. So I thought about it and I knew it was there, but didn't give it much thought. Well, I I developed what's called pigeon lung, uh, a really bad infection in my lungs from the pigeon dust and I couldn't be around it anymore. And, you know, I was, I was heartbroken, didn't know what I was going to do, you know, because I just, I had to have, have, you know, some kind of responsibility kit to get me out no matter how cold or how hot. So, you know, one of the guys said, you know, these hawks don't produce the kind of dust the amount of dust that a hundred pigeons do in a loft um you know you might think about that so i thought about it and i said well this might be something i could do and as i checked into it i found out how difficult it is to become a falconer it takes a full year just to get ready before you even get to trap your first hawk so i jumped on it right away i said okay i'll I'll try this out. So I did. And I got lucky, found a found a, a guy to sponsor me. You have to have a sponsor when it comes to falconry. Uh, in this state, you're an apprentice for two years. That means you don't, in most situations, you don't make too many of your own decisions with your hawk or your training. You listen to your uh, sponsor and he tells you, um, and you do that for two years. And um, I had a really great sponsor, really good, really good guy. I mean, a, a good teacher. Uh, he's done it since the 70s. And 
Um, I flew my first two Hawks caught game with them, which was a requirement. He, he had to see it hunt and he had to see it catch game. And I did that. And, uh, here it is. I think I'm on my sixth Hawk now. Oh my gosh. That is so cool. I had, I, I had no idea, um, about like yeah. two year apprenticeship. I had, I had no idea. And that that's really cool. So, and yeah. Um, I, I, uh, I might come back to it too. I just have a lot in my plate and I'm trying to some, I'm trying to simplify my life a little bit more so then I can do more later, I guess. But, um, I really was thinking about getting pigeons for a while and I put that on pause for now, but I might come back to that. Um, but I, that is, that is super cool. So So now what does, how long can you do it before then you could sponsor somebody else? What does that look like? Um, you, you're, first you are a, you're an apprentice for two years. Mm-hmm. And then I think it is, well, I can't remember now, another two or three years and you become a general falconer as a general falconer, so you're already like four years in from your first hog, um, at that point, you can then sponsor uh, an apprentice. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm flying my sixth hawk now. I, there's no way I could sponsor somebody. I just do not. I know how to train and hunt a red-tailed hawk. That's, that's what I do. Um, the guy that I learned from just has such a vast array of hawks and um i mean he's even he lived out in california when he started back in the 70s so he's just got so much more experience and so much more knowledge to draw on when it comes to a problem with the hawk so so in other words i could i could tell somebody how i train a hawk how it goes from start to finish but the very first time a problem comes along I'm in trouble because I'm still calling my sponsor right now today um, when I when I hit a problem, you know, because I just um, he's he's hit every problem in the book with every kind of hawk in the book. He's hunted every game. So he somebody like that is a is a real sponsor. Um, I just I, I wouldn't be prepared and I can't imagine anybody five, six years in would be prepared to actually. Like I said, I could teach somebody how to hunt and fly a hawk, but any little speed bump, and I'd be kind of scrabbling for answers. And what then, would, what would be I, examples I, of? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Along with um, when you're an apprentice, you can fly a red tail hawk in Iowa or a kestrel, I believe. Um, and then when you become a general, more species open up to you, which also opens up different kind of prey. So you can have, um, you can be hunting feather at that point, chasing pheasants or, um, you know, like flying a cooper's hawk or something like that. Um, and then I think at 10 years, you are a master falconer, even more species open up to you and you can keep more hawks at the same time. Interesting. Yeah, so right now I think I'm allowed to, as a general, I think I'm allowed to keep two or three hawks. Um, and I know people that do. I don't know how they manage their time because one hawk is all I can manage. I mean, it's even on days that I don't hunt, still to prepare 
weigh the hawk and um, measure out the amount of food that I want to give it, then to go feed it, you know, that's still, you know, close to 45 minutes or something, start to finish. And that's without, you know, that's without, you know, anything special going on. That's just a regular day. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes, I mean, that makes complete sense. And okay. So I, um, I have so many questions and I'm trying to think of where to start with it. (laughs) You ask a question and I find myself, this is what happens to me when I talk about falconry, (laughs) you know, I, yeah. I, and I, I got, I try to guard myself when I'm, when somebody here in town asks me about falconry, I try to try to get to the point and answer the question because I will go off on tangents um, and end up talking about something falconry related, but nothing to do. Oh, I totally get you. And that's probably what they asked me about. Yeah, that's probably half this podcast. So you're, you're safe here. That's okay. I, I'm just like super, I'm super excited about the subject and I just think it's really interesting. Um, I definitely have some sort of, it's been a lot, like I have a lot of interest in, you know, the rap, like the raptors, like hawks and falcons and and hawk, uh, owls. Like I, I just have a lot of interest in them. I think they're very cool, um, kind of intimidating as just an animal in general. Um, I love to bird hunt. Yeah. You know, I just, I, I, it's definitely been on my radar to learn about and try, you know, in my lifetime um, for a long time. Um, but it does seem like an undertaking, like, okay, so things I'm, so, so, so things I think about not just, not just caring for it, you know, cause before yeah. we hit, before we hit record, you, you said, you know, you really want to make sure people realize like, they're not just like a pet, you know, like that's, that's not the reason <laughs> to get, to get into this, you know? Um, and I, I think that that seems pretty right. obvious. Like, I wonder, like, th- this might be a really stupid question. I don't know. So how often do you need to let your hawk out to fly? Like, how often do you need to let them like, be yeah. out exercise like how how often is that well i mean the only answer is as often as possible yeah you yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, i know a difference most of the time i can get out and fly my hawk almost every day i mean at least five days out out of seven um most of the time but there's been times where i've only been able to fly maybe two or three times in a span of two weeks mm-hmm. and I've noticed hawks um, get pent they get pent up they get frustrated or I'm not sure what happens but um, I'm not going to say aggressive they don't they, but it does that's the closest word they will tend to get a little aggressive when they're pent up and mm-hmm. not <clears throat> and, and um, a typical day hunting I mean it can be anywhere from you know you step into a field and you have a rabbit 10 minutes later you know or less um but if things you know aren't going your way i've spent an hour hour and a half hunting and at that point if you haven't caught something the hawk is also getting frustrated and it's time to call it a day but i would say my average day is 45 minutes of hunting and it's here in iowa it's hard hunting it's you know cover Mm-hmm. in a year like we have right now where we haven't had a lot of s- snow 
or ice to really crush the cover down, it's really hard hunting. Um, I don't know, doing it the way I do it without a dog. Um, I'm 52 now. I don't know how much longer I could do it because this is very hard hunting without a dog in Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. I could, I could totally see that. And do you, um, so do the falconry like hunting, does that, does that, is that only allowed during the Iowa hunting seasons or uh, can, can you hunt your, like, can you hunt your hawk or can you hunt your hawk like all year long technically? Or how does that, how does that work? Um, in Iowa, I believe hunting season starts for a while it was August 1st um, and, and they might've moved it to September now, but honestly, that's way too early, way too hot. Yeah. Uh, way yeah. too yeah. hot. Yeah. Uh, you know, it'd be hard. I guess I'll get into explaining the training a bit later, but way too hard to get a hawk ready to hunt in that kind of heat. And then mm -hmm. cover is just so thick. Uh, no matter what you're hunting whether it's a rabbit or pheasants they can run underneath that grass forever you know and and you'll never get a slip you, you know it's um but anyways it i think it runs right now from august until until the first of april oh wow cool that's cool i think is last last day of the hunt falcon the long season and it you know it it spans, it, it spans a couple seasons, you know, I mean, you go from fall hunting, you know, it's, oh man, it was, it was a warm fall this year. And mm -hmm. I was out there, you know, the stickers and burrs and that beggar's license stuff, and you couldn't wear a jacket. So, you know, that's not, and the wild rose, oh my goodness, you know, you're out there. I'm the, I'm the bird dog. Cause I don't have a, a dog for my, my hawk. So I'm the guy in there trying to get rabbits moving from the raspberry patches and stuff. So it's really hard hunting. And then it runs through winter and back into spring. Gotcha. That's cool. So like I could see that as a, as one of the reasons as someone who loves to hunt, you know, yeah. that, that this could be, you have a longer hunting season, you know, the long dates your hunting season. That's neat. That's really neat. Yeah. Um, what are you, so you're typically after rabbits and birds, right? Is that? Uh, with the, with the red-tailed hawk, you're after rabbits and squirrels. Okay. And um, I mean, I know guys who have pheasants with the red-tailed hawk, but that's pretty rare. Um, yeah. You know, and it's usually not on the wing. It's usually a pheasant that's hunkered down or running along, you know, running on, on the ground. Because I've, I've got a few videos of uh, of me pushing a pheasant, pushing pheasants out ahead and a red-tailed hawk has no chance against a pheasant i mean yeah. there's you know the, the, a red-tailed hawk is kind of like the the tank of the falconry world they use gravity to build up speed and crush something on the ground um you know trying to catch something on the wing for a red tail is it isn't really in the cards yeah no that makes sense i um so the other day and maybe this is what was happening. And I am definitely like, I pro everyone says this, you know, no such thing. I, I love my dogs like more than I love most people, you know, <laughs> like they're my, they're my babies. And, yeah. um, 
I have a puppy. He's gotten pretty big now. I wouldn't be super worried about it now, but he's only a few months, you know, he's like six months old right now. Um, and, uh, like two months ago, so he's still pretty little. I was, uh, out in this public area that there are pheasants and rabbits and all the things. Yeah. And I was running, I was running my dogs and I had, and usually there's sometimes other people there and I'm not, you know, too, I mean, it's a, a public area. Like I said, there was this truck kind of like yeah. slowly pulling in and it kind of like was bizarre at first. And then as I'm walking, I like, you know, get that when you get that sensation that something's like looking at you. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm walking and I like turn my head and just at the level above the grass, above my puppy, you yeah. know, um, this this hawk is like circling around my dogs. You know, I wasn't really worried about <laughs> I my, and they're Britneys, so they're small yeah. dogs anyway, you know. Um and yeah. I was thinking to myself, like, I don't want to hurt a bird, but in my mind, I'm like, should I be worried about this right now? Should I be worried that this hawk is like coming in on, is coming in on my dog, you know? And it yeah. like super freaked me out. And I called, I called my puppies over or whatever. Um, but I thought I'm, I was like, what is happening right now? Like I go out here all the time and, and there's rabbits and, and like I said, there's rabbits and yeah. Um, pheasants and there's timber all around like there's mice like it could have been after whatever but I was genuinely thinking this thing is after my puppy right now like it was right above it really low almost like eye level with me and yeah. I was super freaked out <laughs> like what uh, is happening it, typically I've never had none of my hawks have ever uh, um We've come across cats out in fields and stuff, and they've never, ever messed with a cat, never even thought about it, really, or dogs. I think there's yeah. just something about the way a predator moves or something. They just, you know, even if they've never seen a cat, they just they just aren't interested. Um, yeah. I mean, the yeah. closest one time my hawk was kind of eyeing up a possum that was just waddling through the field, you know, but I mean, it would have been super easy, but you know, I think that the hawk just kind of knew better. And I was glad I didn't want to have to mess with a possum. But yeah. what was uh, what I was going to say is what was probably hawk has seen dogs before. And those dogs have made a rabbit move or has made mice move. Um, and it's learned that, you know, I've seen hawks. Yeah. Hawks are drawn to when 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 you're burning a ditch, for instance, I've seen hawks like come in just like with their wings locked coming in to grab a telephone pole above a fire because they've seen it before um any farmer out here will tell you that as soon as they hit a cornfield with a combine and come to the end there's and those hawks have learned um that there's going to be mice or whatever something moving out ahead of those combines yeah no that makes sense and like it didn't um it didn't really, you know, I, I was kind of thinking that too. And I was just, it was just interesting. It was almost like, it was super cool to watch, but it was super like, you know, like I had my first, my first Britain, my oldest Britain, when he was that little, we, um, 
there was an owl in like a enclosure and an the owl which was yep. bigger than him at the time um it came slamming down from its its branch yeah and tried to get to my puppy like <laughs> right right when we walked by like i mean immediately and slammed itself into the side um when he was just a little guy so i just remember that you know and i and i know a hawk is going to be different but i i just watched these uh hunters with these different types of you know hawks and falcons and stuff and they're working with their bird dogs and they they have this like partnership and i think that is so incredible and you know just because i'm ignorant and not experienced i i just imagine like i wonder what my bird dogs would be like in those situations because it is a bird like if they would consider that you know their prey or if they would work well with that you know i it's just it's fascinating to me yeah and i've i've been on hunts with um with oh like a guy hunting um hunting pheasants with a hawk uh with a goshawk and he's got some german short-haired pointers but they they definitely learn that the hawk is you know right away they learn that the hawk is not the object here you know that's not yeah. the object of fire um yeah and it's completely ignored for pheasants you know and, and they can differentiate you know they the the dogs it, you're right it's an amazing partnership when i when i see when i see that happening uh, 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 somebody with a good dog and a good hawk it's it's amazing to watch because sometimes for me just keeping a hawk hunting it's it, you know there's enough for me to think about right there alone without having uh something else thrown in like a, a dog yeah so like so so do okay so with so let's say it was um a bird so i know you have a hawk so you're primarily using if you have a boy or a girl a male or female hawk she's most it's most likely a female but because of her size um females being bigger and raptors um so she has small to medium female or a really big male gotcha okay cool i did not i didn't realize that either so yeah and in most in most cases people want whether you're hunting a uh anything from a kestrel to goshawk to peregrine to um a red tail most people are looking for the females they want a female because they are bigger and um they're the other important part of it is like the size of the hawk's feet just means that much better chance of grabbing something and holding on to it. And the feet definitely seem to be bigger in females in, in all species also. Interesting. That's super yeah. cool. So, so this is like what I'm imagining. So with rabbits and squirrels, whether you have a dog or you're the one kind of pushing those animals for, yeah. for your, for your hawk, um, your, so your job is to, you know, help them find them, but like, do you have to kind of work them into an open area or can the birds kind of like manage that? Okay. Does that make sense? Well, what I'm saying? Well, I'll just, I'll walk you through a, like a typical hunt. Okay. Uh, normally we'll get to the field. I get, grab the hawk out of the box. We walk to from whatever parking spot we're at, uh, 
walk to where cover starts. And with a red-tailed hawk, you need perches. You need some bigger trees, more, more mature trees, um, because they use that gravity to build up speed and chase. So I'll, you know, get closer to the to the trees and I just, I cast the hawk off my fist and she takes a perch up in a tree. And then I just grab, you know, I'll have a stick, a hockey stick, a hiking stick, something to beat the brush. And that's what I started doing. I just start beating the brush. And um, as, as I move, if I get too far from the hawk and she's not moving with me, I might call her to the fist and she's trained to do that. Uh, you know, by using little tidbits, you know, as a reward. And as training progresses, the tidbits come farther and farther between. I might call her to my fist five times and only give her a tidbit one time, but I'll call her to my fist and then toss her up to a closer, to a closer perch so that she can keep an eye on me. At this point, my hawks are usually like this point in the year, it's December now. My hawks have been out hunting a lot and they understand that slips are coming from me. I'm pushing stuff out, even if it's a mouse or something that I've made move. You, you, you know, it, it, falconers don't count a mouse or a gopher or something like that as a, you know, really like in a head count if you keep in track of that stuff. To me, it's as good as a rabbit or anything else because in a hawk's mind, it's a success. It knows that I made something move and it got it. So anyways... Um, we'll just move like that. At this point in the year, my hawks are following me through the timber or we're, you know, they're moving from tree to tree following me. This hawk doesn't let me get more than, than I'd say 40 yards or so. And that's quite a ways if you're in kind of like thick timber, you know, that's, you know, like I can't see my hawk anymore at that point. Um, she can definitely see me, but then she'll catch up again or maybe even jump ahead if we've been getting lucky and I've been pushing rabbits or something out ahead of me, they start to, they catch onto that really quick and they might like hopscotch ahead through the timber, stuff like that. And, um, you know, in a average hunt, we're out for an hour. In a good field, we might have three or four slips in that time where, uh, you know, I've put made a rabbit move and they've had at least a shot at it and, um, they'll, crash down onto the rabbit or squirrel or whatever you have and then it's my job again to go find the hawk because they don't bring you know they don't bring their rabbit back to you or whatever they just stay there and uh you know you know just kind of <laughs> vote over their prize while you know the clumsy human is trying to hack his way through wild rows and everything else um so i've got bells on my hawk a lot of guys will have um, GPS or something like that to track their hawks with with mine I have bells and I can hear her moving through timber I can hear her when she's down on a kill and eventually find her that's awesome and so the guys with and I don't know if you can like speak to this at all but the guys with the the um Oh, I guess it would be probably falcons, right? Or like maybe a goose hawk. Uh, where for for bird hunting for like pheasants, um, are they wanting a dog that points the bird, or they want one that like flushes the bird, or is it kind of either or? Do you know? Um, I can only say what I've seen in person. I mean, I've sure. watched in videos, but what I've seen 
in person is they want a pointer. And it seems to me like the falconer will walk up and actually make the bird flush. Yep. That's what it that's what it seems like because at that point, with that kind of hawk, you're hunting from the fist. Uh your hawk is riding on your fist. Uh it yeah, and it's a it with pheasant or something, it's typically goshawk, but you can hunt with with um peregrines or something like that also. But the hawk is on your fist walking through the field. So you don't want that. You don't want the dog to flush the bird while you're still 30 feet behind or whatever. They yeah, want a pointer I, that will that will hold, you know, really good. And then you get up as close as you can uh, before the bird flushes. Yeah. And silly me, I said goosehawk, so goshawk. Yeah, yeah. I realized I said that. Um, no, that's okay. That's super cool. That's, that's what I like imagined. Um, but so now I'm going to go kind of backwards again. So you talked about that you you trap them and you've had you're on your sixth hawk. So at what point what at what point do you um let them like let them free? You know, they've spent time with you, they've hunted with you, and yeah. then they're you know, you you let them let them go again. What is what does that look like? Okay, let me start from I'll try to stay on track. I'll start <laughs> training and go to the first free flight and then releasing it back to the wild. Okay, cool. Okay, the way I practice falconry is I I trap a passage hawk. That's a hawk that is uh, flying south for the first time. You know, they'd hatch up here, they'd hatch in June or something, and I'm trapping them in, oh, October maybe. Sep late September, October is when I usually trap. And... Um, I begin the training practice right away. If I trap the hawk in the morning, um, I put all her gear on her and um, start training right away. And we, my first couple hawks took me, my first hawk took six weeks before we were free flying and actually hunting. The next one took like five weeks. The last few have taken three weeks. This hawk actually was, ready to hunt in two weeks and I knew it but I was afraid you know because like two weeks just didn't seem like you know I just didn't want to release this hawk yet to go hunting in a field so um I took an extra week and I paid for it she she got um she got frustrated with doing the same damn thing in the yard over and over for an extra week we should have been hunting but we hunt you know all the way through um oh and boy that first time you release a hawk I don't care who you are. It's 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 like the the nerves are just on edge. And I'm a professional worrier. Like I can worry about <laughs> anything. If I don't have something to worry about, I'm worried that I'm not thinking of you know. Like there's something to worry about, Albert. You just you know like because I don't have any worries. So that first time, you know, you um. Oh man, it's I can't describe it. Like you've spent three to six weeks training this hawk and you weigh it every morning to monitor its weight and you adjust the weight uh, depending on her reactions you know if she doesn't want to hop to you right away then you maybe take a few more grams off of her if uh, she's hopping too fast then you want to add as much as you can so you're all this stuff is going on i mean just um you're trying to progress through it as quickly as possible to get out to the field 
And then all of a sudden you're out in the field and you have to throw that hawk up into a tree, you know, with no strings attached. It's like, you can leave now if you want. And it's, it's, I haven't knock on wood. I haven't lost a hawk yet. Um, it does happen. It, it happens that a hawk just decides it's uh, whatever, it's going to drift off. So and um, nothing you can do about it. You know, there's there's nothing you can do about it. You drift off in the sunset. Yeah. See, the, I don't know, that would, that would be hard, but I think it would be for me because I just am like, I'm all about the feels and like, I'm a <laughs> over, I'm a deep thinker, but definitely an overthinker. And it would be so hard for me. Like, I guess, okay, to go back, do you feel that these birds get like an emotional connection to their handler at all? Um, personally, I don't feel that at all from my hawks. I feel that if they were real hungry and I broke my ankle while we were hunting, it would eat me. <laughs> Like, like all the way through, you know, we've caught all these rabbits and we've done all these great, and I've got some great videos and I, I just don't believe, I know that there are some people who do. And, you know, like I've seen, I've seen people like almost snuggling their hawks and the hawk, in, in my mind, the hawk tolerates it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's like but, what I imagine with them too. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. I, I just think, you know, like, even if you, if you watch hawks in the wild if you watch like you know there's all kinds of eagle cams and stuff nest cams you know on yes yeah online you can see all this stuff they really barely tolerate the breeding season you know right. they yeah. just don't have that social part of the so uh, i don't i don't kid myself you know we me and my hawks we definitely side eye each other the whole season <laughs> you know it's like if i make a mistake this hawk is is they don't and I'm not going to say they even hold grudges. I just don't think they have those kind of human emotions. But yeah. if you make a mistake with a hawk, if you ever make a hawk feel like you stole a meal from it, do that once. So you have to be very guarded with the way you handle food around it. You, you know, how, how, you, how you present it. You have to be very careful because if they ever get an inkling that you are a competition for food, you're in trouble, you're in trouble. You know, you get, that's where you get an aggressive hawk. And again, I don't even think that the hawk sees you as an enemy. I just think they see you as competition. They just don't have that kind of brain that a dog does that understands um, hierarchy or pack mentality. They don't have that kind of brain. Yeah. I don't yeah. think now, you know, and I'm not, a, I'm not a ornithologist. So that's just from what I've seen. Yeah, I do know, I've heard one person tell me one time, because, and this was like in passing, um, just talking about it, about um, they had gone with someone who was a falconer and the um, hawk had like, didn't, it didn't like, it didn't hurt the dog enough to like take him to the vet or anything like that, but the hawk basically kind of just like put its talons into it a little bit yeah. and um but they said that it only happened once and that basically the dog was just trying to take away the bird yeah. um and so uh they said i think it just got mad it was just you know just getting feisty like 
other animals would with each other if you take their toy away or that you take your you know eating out of their bowl it was kind of the same thing because yeah. uh yeah so that that's like what i picture in their mind is they're all business you know they want to they want to be successful and they're going to do whatever they can to just like get the yeah. win is like what i imagine yeah you, you even you even have to think like put yourself in the hawk's position and i know they don't have like human thoughts but that hawk knows like we have weather coming up where it might be 20 below tonight mm -hmm. and it especially at the weights we keep these hawks at to hunt you know to be able to get them back in the field they have to have a little edge of hunger you you know that's the i hunt my hawks as heavy as I can get them, but still get them to respond to me, to come back to me. Um, they know that at 20 below tonight, that they could freeze to death without these calories. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah. so anything gets in the, in the way of that <clears throat> and they don't lash out as, you know, with any kind of hate or anything. They just, you know, just survival. They just know survival. And yeah. there's, you know, food to a hawk is all important. You know, if you, I mean, training, dogs you know what a uh, what a training with a tidbit can do i mean they're all about it but a hawk is like 10 times beyond that with food i mean uh, food is their world that's it yeah that makes complete sense i just wondered like what that connection could be like or not be like because i think it would be so hard to you know maybe have a bond with or really love a certain right. hawk or falcon and like have to let it go you know like that would that would be a bummer right and and there is after right and you know after saying that a hawk would definitely see me as a as a meal if it needed one and i was injured i you know i i don't make any i'm not going to kid myself but there <laughs> is connection um i see my hawks changing about this time of year after hunting five six times a week for the last couple months um they start to recognize good cover, you know, like when I come up on raspberries, a clump of raspberries, you know, on the, on the edge of some timber. I mean, that's prime. the hawks know that. And I can, I'm, I watch my hawks and when they see me coming up to that cover, they'll, you know, the last couple, especially they're leaning forward on their perch, like, like waiting. And sometimes I think they see something. I'm like, Oh, here it goes. I'm going to tap this bush and a rabbit's going to come out, but it's not. They've just learned that that's good cover and that there's a better chance of a rabbit there than over here in the wide open. Those kind of things. And when I talked about the hawk, like hopscotching, they've ran out ahead of you. That is a real partnership. It's a real part, you know, and and that's when I feel really good is when I see that hawk antip anticipating my moves, where I'm going to go. Um, when I see that it recognizes good cover, that means I've done my job as a falconer um, because I've taught it or it's learned at least that I kind of know what I'm doing <laughs> and, and looking around. Um, that's, that's when I feel really good, like I've done a good job as a falconer. And to skip ahead to releasing a hawk, yeah, um, you've you've done all these things, 
you've caught all this game if you're lucky and if you've done your job right. And then, you know, it comes time. Um, at this point, I could I could keep a hawk as a general falcon, or I could keep a hawk if I, you know, a year round. I could keep it uh, for the by the time by the time March gets here. Um, I've had, you know, just miles and miles and miles in the field, and my arms are full of cuts and scratches. Um, my knees are hurting from, you know, just walking through snow and tripping and twisting. And game is becoming harder and harder to find because hawks, owls, coyotes, cars, everything is taking a toll over the winter. So by March, um, <laughs> you're putting on just as many miles, but catching fewer and fewer heads of game. And by the time the end of the season comes, I'm like, good riddance. I cut, <laughs> I cut the, I cut the anklets off, and I, well, I, sp I do. I spend a couple of weeks getting the hawk really good and fat, you know, just as much as food as she wants to eat, um, so that she has a good chance of, of, finding her own little area to hunt because when I'm releasing my hawks, breeding season. Older hawks are territorial, so I get them good and fat, and I say, "See you later." And they go <laughs> off and you know that they're they're ready um, at that point, ready for the breeding population. Um, which is another thing that I'd like listeners to understand is that the way I practice falconry, I trap a wild hawk, and people, you know, some people say, "Oh, that's terrible. Let it be a wild hawk." Well, that that hawk has about a 15 to 20 percent chance of surviving its first year in the wild because of um all the man-made hazards plus all of just things that happen in nature like i said one day of not finding something to eat and it's 20 below that night that hawk freezes to death they crash into a fence they crash into a pile a, a brush pile chasing something and break a wing or just even damage feathers that hawk's dead you know it, it that's the that's the end for it with me with a falconer you've got almost a hundred percent chance of survival yeah that what makes sense. still happens are those things where they if you aren't there and they they'll crash into a fence or they will um, do the same thing, just crash into cover thinking it's just some grass there and it's a log on the other side of the grass. So you can lose a hawk. And I've had some nasty, nasty crashes with a couple hawks, but they've been okay. It took a couple days off and hunting again. So when I release a hawk, I'm re releasing a hawk that knows how to hunt. I'm releasing a hawk that has seen a winter even though it's been a protected winter which is what we call the, the building where we keep a hawk the muse um but she's still seen uh she's still seen what can go wrong she's made her own mistakes and she's ready to join the breeding population that's awesome no <clears throat> that is that's super cool i i'm sure there's more than one way to do this too i'm curious how now to go like backwards again but how when in the initial in the initial training, when you release them, how how do how do you get them to come back? How do they come back to your wrist? 
Well, that is all in the early training. Mm -hmm. um, my first step in training is to get the hawk just to accept that hood that goes over their head and eyes. Yeah. Um, that hood is there. For, it, it, it's a tool. There's there's a reason for it. Um, there's just going to be times when you need a hawk hooded, whether it's to treat an injury or um, just, just to be around other hawks if you're going hunting with other distracted or worried about other hawks. So I teach it to accept the hood. And that's one of the most nerve wracking parts to me um, because the only, the only way to get through that at that point, you can't tidbit or reward a hawk for taking the hood. You just have to, just have to get through it together. You know, it's like I know you don't, <laughs> I don't either. But you know, we're gonna do this. So you get through hood training, and um, it'll usually take a hawk, a a tidbit from you. Um, you know, and you place it on your glove or hold it in front of the hawk with uh, with forceps or whatever. And it'll take a couple of days, but they get hungry enough. And, um, you know, that's another thing. It's like, I know you're hungry. You know, you're hungry. You're going <laughs> to eat a Let's do it now. But, you know, they have their own timeline. So once they're taking the tidbits, you'll maybe make them stretch a little farther for it. You know, like I do it with forceps. She'll be sitting on my little farther for it. After a few days of that, I'll set her on a perch. And, you know, now this is the first time she's been off the, the glove to eat. And, you know, that brings, it's almost like they revert to a little bit wilder time. You know, like they're, they're now they're like, oh man, I, I'm free. So they'll try to, you know, they might try to blast away. and um, But you get them to stretch for that piece on your glove. And maybe five days after it took its first, tidbit she's ready to hop to your uh, uh, that's a big milestone for me the way I train as soon as they hop to the glove then we're moving on you've hopped to my glove you know we're getting done with this I know guys who love training hawks I know, know guys who love trapping hawks I don't like any of it I don't enjoy any of that stuff I want to get to the field you know so once that hawk hops to me you just work out to a farther and farther distance and at some point, this is, I'm doing all this inside. At some point, I move outside to like a zip line that we call a creance. Um, the kind I use is like, like that cable you'd put a dog on, a, a cable stake to the ground, and it's got a shorter leash, but the, you know, it's yeah. got a four foot leash, but the run 100 yards or whatever. Um, we move out to that and move farther and farther away every day. And by the time a hawk is flying, maybe a hundred foot to me without acting up and trying to fly away or getting too scared of something. Um, that's it. We're done with training and we're hunting now and, and, and training them, you know, the, I'm learning, the hawk is learning, uh, when we're out in the field, we're still training, but, but, you know, we're hunting, at least we're hunting and chasing game. So that's, and, and that's the only hold you have, the only hold I have on a hawk is that it's hungry enough when we get to the field to come back to my fist when I whistle. And um, if, you know, 
with some hawks, it can be a matter of a few grams. A few grams is too heavy, and they aren't in a real big. It's been 10, 15 degrees the last few days, and now it's a nice 35, 40 degree day, and the sun is out, and all of a sudden, that hawk is more interested in just sitting in the sun and enjoying himself. And, you know, there, and then there's Albert on the ground whistling, saying, come on, let's go home now, <laughs> you know. So it, that happens. And, th and that happens too, especially with a guy like me. I like to keep that hawk as close to too fat as possible because it's better for the hawk. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It, you know, it's, it's better for the hawk. Um, and have a hawk that won't hesitate to come to me, but uh, that comes with problems too. Yeah. Have you ever, have you, so now, have you, after releasing one, have you had one that like came back or came back around or that you've seen that you know for sure was like your previous hawk or anything like that? I don't think so. I drive them. I mean, in Iowa, it's kind of hard to get too far from civilization, but I drive them like up to the river bottom up at Marengo or something. Something and release them up there where I know hunting for them. And um, no, there's you know at that point they're really super fat and they plop down on a limb and you know they say goodbye to me. They're not interested. Uh, you know I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't. And the other thing is, um, the way I get them ready for release, they don't hardly see me for that two weeks that I'm getting fat. I feed them through a hole in the in the wall. I drop food through a hole yeah. and they it. so when I go to pick, pick them up to actually release them they've already gotten kind of wild again they've almost you know especially when they're fat they don't really care to come to my fist for any reason they, they aren't yeah. hungry um so well, there's I'm not gonna say it's a fight or a battle but there's definitely some some coercion and coaxing to get a hawk to just get on my fist yeah yeah um, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I was just always like so curious about that. If, uh, you know, if there's any sort of, if you're getting them like fat and happy, that does make a lot of sense because I was wondering what would be, yeah. you know, if you're helping them, if there's any sort of, if they're having any sort of thought in their head, well, why would I leave if he's putting me on food, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, they've, yeah, they've kind of reverted to the wild again even without being in the wild, they just haven't had any human contact for a couple of weeks. And, um, and there is maybe, you know, there's, there's an argument. Some people think that um, falconry hawks don't do too well once they've been released just because they've been a falconry mm -hmm. hawk. Um, I, I don't know falconry hawk does just fine when they're released, as long as they're released someplace where, you know, there's, mice or gophers or something for them to catch and to yeah. kind of get their bear used to being in the wild and when i release them it's coming springtime so they aren't dealing with horrible weather or anything like that so i i think they do just fine once they return to the wild at least a red tail from what i've you know the behavior i've seen they do just fine how long do you uh <clears throat> how long would you typically keep one for and that before you know kind of starting over I'm not sure I understand the yeah the... yeah sure um so you trap you trap one and you train yeah. them and then maybe it takes you three to six weeks or whatever that time frame is 
how long do you have that particular hawk before releasing them and kind of and starting over with a new one? Oh, um, well, I, I'll release them in March sometime. So it's just for the season. Yeah, right? the way okay. I, I keep them for one season. And also, I mean, I'm still, I'm self-employed, so I'm running a, a business. I've got kids, a wife, responsibilities. I don't really, I'd prefer not to have to feed a hawk every day for the next, you know, six months till hunting season again. Um, so it works out really well for a guy like me. I can uh, um, hunt the hawk, do it whatever favors I can to um, increase its its survivability in the wild and, and uh, then trap a new one. Yeah, gotcha. So that's not necessarily how everybody does it, but for you, that's like how it works. Because yeah, you, could, you could keep one for a couple years, yeah. you know. Yeah, keep a hawk for season after season after season and um there's nothing wrong with that there's you know that's it just it's more convenient for me the other way yeah no it makes sense and i would think maybe and i don't know i'm just guessing i i really have no idea but when you talk about how much more um their survival rate increases after um you know being with a falconer I wonder yeah. if that goes the opposite way, if they're with a falconer too long, or if not, if their instincts are so strong, like, or, you know, what's, I guess, what's the lifespan of like a hawk typically? I would, I would guess that a hawk that's been kept for three or four seasons would have, have a harder time surviving in the wild if released. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that I'd feel good about releasing one myself after keeping it that long. I, you know, I, I think I'd, I'd feel like I was locked in, um, yeah. in the wild. Like I said, 80% of these hawks die their first year, you know, right. they, they yeah. take it. Um, but with each year that increases, you know, I mean, a two-year-old hawk, if it's made it through two seasons, it has a really good chance of making it to a third. Yeah. I've, I've that, a four-year-old hawk in the wild is is a, a pretty old bird. You yeah. know, it's a, um, nature is brutal. Yeah, in, in captivity, I, I've seen uh, tons of hawks, 12 and 10, 12, 14 years old. Yeah, we, uh, and that's like, and it's wild to think about because I see hawks every day all over the place. Yeah. Um, you know, and just, uh, like actually one time my brother and I were <laughs> taking turns driving back from a hunt one time and we had like, I don't know, four hours to go. And we counted how many hawks we saw on our drive <laughs> back because we were just trying yeah. to like keep our brains entertained because we were exhausted. Um, yeah. And yeah, they're all over the place, but so they have a lot of competition, I'm sure. Right. And another thing that I have to say for the falconry community, and it has nothing to do with me because I wasn't involved before my time, but, you know, during the grand old days of DDT, um, when you yeah. had wheat, yeah. gel, um, the peregrine falcon was all but extinct in North America, all but extinct. They had scientists working on it. I mean, even after they found out what was doing it, DDT was, was eliminated. Um, 
they just weren't having and one a big there was a big breeding program right here at uh at the university in Iowa City. Yeah. But they weren't having any luck. They just couldn't figure out the breeding. They couldn't figure out, you know, how how to get them trained for release. And uh, you know, a small community of falconers stepped in. Um Because back up until the 80s, there was almost no re regulation for falconry. Those guys have been doing it forever. Um, not even under the radar. There was no radar. It was, you know, it was just you're allowed to do it. So the falconry falconry community um, taught those guys how to do it. And, you know, and then that that was used for other species. Um, you know, that knowledge was. But uh, without falconers, I, I just I think. I think we would not have peregrines in North America without them. Yeah. Yeah, that's super cool. I, um, do you run, okay, so, and I don't know the, the laws on this um, exactly, but like raptors in general are protected, right? Yeah. So um, like federally, right? Yep. And so, do you, as like their caretaker, you know, as a caretaker of one, do you have to report certain things or are you under like a certain responsibility if you trap it and then, you know, you're, you yes. know, you're training and there with it is, and um, that happens? Yeah, there's, um, they're, they're covered under uh, international treaties for migratory, migratory birds because, you know, like a, a red-tailed hawk that I trapped isn't just a resource of the state of Iowa. It was maybe hatched in Canada. Sure, um, yeah. And, you know, and, and it's, you know, flying south for the winter. Um, so, yes, there's a lot of paperwork involved. It has gotten a little easier. Um, there's still, there's, it's still overseen by federal government, but now our paperwork, um, mainly has to do with with the state with the state of Iowa um, it's it's gotten a little easier and I'm not gonna say less red tape because you still have those forms to fill out but it is it's a it's a big responsibility um, just like anything else and any deer that you're hunting um, really isn't your or deer, I understand that it is, and we are fortunate enough to be allowed to uh, hunt it, you know, that's yeah. a, as a right, but it's a big responsibility. And especially when you talk about a migratory bird, um, you know, you're, you're playing with an ecosystem up in Canada also. Yeah. Yep. That makes sense. I know I just, that is, uh, that is super cool. And um, was there any part of you that like, because initially it sounds intimidating to get into at first, you know, like I'm sure yeah. um, even if someone's all gung-ho, I feel like you really need to understand these things before jumping in, which you and I have talked about, like, this isn't just like a normal hobby. Um there's a lot to consider. I guess who, in your opinion, in your experience going through this, who do you think falconry is for versus not for? 
Okay. Yeah. One of the most I can stress is that it is almost a way of life. Um, the way I do it for six months of the year, because then I release my hawk. But, um, you know, if you're the type of person who's going to want to keep that hawk, hold it over for the next season, um, it's responsibility and it's a, it's, it's, it's a big one. It's time consuming. Um, just learning, just passing the test. There's a, there's, a, you have to find a sponsor. That's really difficult in Iowa. That's very difficult. I think last year, a year before there were only 50 falconers, licensed falconers in the state. And you're looking for someone who is a general or, or above to be a sponsor. Um, and then they have to be close enough that, you know, that you can hunt with them and learn from them. And um, that's, that's one of the biggest hurdles. It really is to find a sponsor. Then you have to pass a test and you have to pass with like an 80 or 85%. And it's, uh, I can't remember what it is, uh, 120 yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of questions and you have to pass that test. Then you have to have facilities that get inspected by DNR, um, you know, to keep the hawk. They have to inspect your facilities and your equipment. And, uh, you know, then, the, then you get to learn how to be a falconer. And that is no small feat. So all of those things, somebody who's looking at getting into falconry, you have to consider that amount of time first of all and that's a whole year lining up a sponsor because most guys any sponsor worth being a sponsor is going to want you to go hunting with him before you ever before he ever even says um i'll be your sponsor he wants you to go hunting with him he wants to see that you're willing to put in that much time and expense to begin with so if you're going to be, if you're willing to go through all of that, then you have to realize that you are training an actual wild animal, and that's the <laughs> only, that's your only option as an apprentice in in Iowa. You have to trap a passage red tail hawk or kestrel, and kestrel is a horrible decision, in, especially in Iowa. Anyways, they're a small bird. Um, you know, you're hunting grasshoppers, mice, or whatever. But so you're kind of stuck with the red tail hawk, uh, a passage red tail hawk as your hawk for as your hawk for the next two years. Um, my sponsor made it clear from the start that I was going to train my first hawk and release it and trap a, another hawk the next year. So I was going to be training two hawks before he ever signed the papers. stating that I had accomplished what needs to be accomplished to become a general falconer. And um, it's, it's, it's really hard. I, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's hard. You have to stay focused. There's times, like I said, I don't like even from the very start hooding a hawk, you know, making this hawk take this hood that it doesn't want to take. Um, just convincing a hawk to take that first little tiny bit of meat from you is just so nerve wracking to me. Uh, you have to be focused and always I have to remind myself that the good part's coming. I don't know how other people get through it. I know most falconers love training a hawk. I can't imagine loving <laughs> that part of it. Most most of 
love it. Yeah, you know, they're they're like, this is why I'm a falconer. I, I'm just, you know, I, I just, I'd, I'd like to skip that part. Yeah. It, no, it's that somebody with a lot of time, initially a little bit of money to get your equipment and your facilities. Um, but it's not some, something that anybody should get into because they think it's just a cool thing like it's oh that's a cool hobby oh i'd look so awesome with a hawk on my fist it, it, i mean oh i do look awesome with a hawk on my fist okay I'll, I'll give them that one but it's it's that's the worst reason to get into it because that's you know that's that's not what the hawk is there for not to sit on your fist and impress girls or boys yeah yeah no that's i mean yeah, I think everyone would look cool with one on their fist for sure, but that totally makes sense. So, so um, <clears throat> this might be too nitty gritty, but what facilities would you, what, what would, where do they sleep? What is required from a yeah. facility standpoint for them? Um, from a, from the regulations, the legal standpoint, I believe that it is an eight by eight in close by eight foot tall uh structure um and then we also have to have have what we call a weathering yard and that's just a small protected yard that's um that's actually exposed to the elements that you can set them outside if you're not hunting enough or whatever um you have a perch in there I, basically like a um a chain link dog kennel something like that there's still in mine, the hawk is still tethered to a perch in the weathering yard, but um, I rarely use mine because, um, like I say, the only time I use it is when we haven't been hunting enough and it needs just to get out, uh, get outside. I, I don't believe a hawk really enjoys being outside. I don't believe a hawk enjoys flying. I don't believe a hawk enjoys hunting. It's all about survival. A hawk knows it's exposed when it's out in the open like that. Um, so I've never had, I, I haven't had this hawk in the weathering yard yet because we've been hunting plenty. And then you have to have like, you have to have your, uh, what we call furniture. And that's the equipment that, that the hawk would wear. You have anklets and jesses. That's the, the part that goes on the leg so you can maintain control. Um, you have to have hoods for the hawk. Some people don't use hoods. I do, like I said, I see benefit even as horrible as hood training is for me. I, I get through it because I want the, I want the benefit of the hood. Um, even things like the, the, the openings on your muse that the building that you keep your hawk in, um, there's a certain type of, there's certain bars that you have to have on there. You can't just put a screen up on there. They'll crash into that. That, uh, you know, they, um, there's a lot of regulations involved. And then you have to have some perches, of course, for your muse and for your weathering yard. So there's some expense. Um, I used a shed that I had and renovated and um, it's actually bigger than what's required. So that worked out good. Um, once you're done with that first initial expense, it's pretty cheap because hopefully like the only expense after that would be food for the hawk and you better be out there hunting enough or close to enough to feed the hawk. <clears throat> yeah. 
Yeah, that, <clears throat> well, that's not as, like, I mean, that's still a lot, and that's, like, a, a cost, but, like, I wonder, when you said structure, too, I, I've seen, like, in the movies, you know, they have, like, their little, it's, like, not little, like, a big bird cage basically, with their yeah. perch, and they're hooked on yeah. by a little chain. Yeah. Um, and there's, and, and there's different, there are different, there's some flexibility, and I know, I know guys who have basically a big weathering yard, and just a small box for the hawk to roost in so they're exposed well not exposed because they have the, that little tiny box for it for the hawk to roost in but um they're basically outside in whatever the weather brings you know whether it's 20 below or whatever and that's just fine it's a, it's a hawk it's it's built for that as long as you're keeping enough weight on your hawk um that it has calories to burn that's that's you know the the hawk is fine with that yeah i was just gonna ask that if you needed a heater but I wouldn't think so because that's what they live oh. in anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah, that would be. Yeah, I don't even when I'm going hunting, um, the hawk I I put it in a box for traveling, which we call a giant hood. It's a it's just a box that you can put in the truck. Um, I won't even turn on the heat when it's uh, we go hunting when it's ten degrees, and I won't turn the heat on in the truck just because. Um, I don't know. I, I it, it just seems like that would kind of mess with a hawk. Yeah. You go from, you know, it was 20 below last night. It's 10 degrees today. And all of a sudden you put it in a 70 degree truck for a half hour ride or whatever. Right. So I don't even turn the heat on for it. And the hawks are just fine. As long as you're keeping them, um, at a healthy weight. Cool. Do you ever have to worry since, since you're, primarily working with females um i guess you know this would go either way when they're out hunting do you have to worry about um other hawks and like breeding i'm sure you have to do it from a territorial standpoint i'm sure they get into it with each other but like do you have to do they take off and like go to breed ever i mean is that like a thing actually it it does happen um coming into spring like coming in like starting in march um local hawks are showing up and setting up breeding territories and they can get territorial um i've had i've had local hawks kind of do a flyby on my hawks and warnings and stuff but also when that weather starts warming up like that you know the my hawks know that 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 season is coming, you know, that time to move, you know, I think just yeah. in, instinct kind of takes over and I see my hawks really often kind of like not taking a good solid perch near the middle of the tree where they can have a good, a good, good launch at prey. They're way up on the tippy top flimsy branches, looking around, scanning the horizon, getting kind of like a faraway look in their eyes. And that's, um, yeah, that's the instinct, you know, like, yeah, the migration or, you know, my, she's up there sitting there thinking about boys, you know, she's yeah. up on the tippy top <laughs> of the tree looking for boys. Yeah. So yeah, it, it does happen. Yeah. Yeah. No, that would be, I just wondered if you ever had like baby hawks <laughs> uh, <laughs> to worry about. Nope. Haven't, haven't yet, but um, <laughs> it is, it is kind of funny. And like I said, by that time of year, I've kind of, my knees and ankles have had their fill of hunting for the year and, you know, prey is scarce. And, you know, the hawk 
knows it. And when I start seeing that look in their eye and they're up there on little teeny tiny point of a tree, you know, I start thinking, yeah, pretty soon it's, it's about time to fatten her up and let her go. Yeah. Super cool. That is super cool. Do you, um, <clears throat> do you think that this is something that, you know, as long as your, your knees and bones can handle it, yeah. is it something you'll do for a long time? I, I wonder sometimes how much longer I have the way I do it without a dog in this kind of cover and terrain. I wonder how long I have. And um, I mean, I know I'm, I'm 52, so I still have a lot of working life ahead of me, but I do also have to think about um, I'm a, I'm a painting contractor. So I do interiors during the winter, exteriors during summers and that's hard work itself. That's hard on knees. Yeah. That's hard. So I do, I will have to think at some point about conserving, you know, what energy and cartilage I have left. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much longer that'll be, but I've got a few more years of, of hawking ahead of me. Sweet. That's super cool. I appreciate that honesty though, because like, that's like what I want, you know, like some of, you know, a lot of things we talk about on the podcast are, they're, they're all super cool. And they're, they're um, kind of an undertaking, you know, and like it, but, and you can absolutely love it. If you've been working with six Hawks, you must on some, you know, maybe you don't love the training part, but you love parts of this, obviously. Yes. Yes. Um, but yeah, there is a time like, it's hard for me. I say this all the time, something that I, again, I feel like a lucky person because of, but it can sometimes be a detriment to me is I just am like such a curious, fascinated person. And I mm -hmm. love, um, trying things, experiencing them, seeing them, asking questions and like figuring yeah. out what's for me and what's not, you know, at the end of the day, if it's not for me, I, I gave it a good shot. Yeah. And I had fun in it because I, I usually enjoy the process. And, um, you know, I think that's, I think that's cool. And like how, how special, like you're seeing, let alone when you're doing stuff outdoors and hunting, you're seeing the world in a way nobody else really sees it anyway. But to see yeah. it like with a hawk on your arm, like it's crazy. It's so crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of, one of my favorite things about whatever whatever it is I've, I'm doing in the outdoors, um, even in Iowa, like I've lived out west where we you have actual wilderness, you know, 10,000 acres of, you know, nothing, no road, no vehicles, nothing. Um, but like, I love driving by, oh, a patch of timber where I hunt, knowing that there's whatever, just an old rusted crumbled hog feeder out there that i've you know that i've seen i mean it's 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 like a little secret it's not much of a secret it's not a very <laughs> useful secret but i like knowing that stuff or you know that like i'll drive by and know that there's a huge shelf fungus up on a on a tree over there and um makes me feel kind of special makes me feel like i know just a little bit more than whoever's sitting in the passenger seat yeah yeah <laughs> you know? Like I said, it isn't anything handy or useful, but I do like knowing and seeing things that you're just not going to 
things that you're not going to see at home or watching TV. Yeah. You have to be on some level, like super proud of yourself though, because to go through that in the beginning to even try it, you know, when you're describing yourself and I don't know you well at all, but like, um, when you describe yourself as like a worrier and if you're not worrying about something, you're worried about it, you know, or, um, like for you to, to do this and then be doing it for the last six plus years and the time commitment and, um, not even loving the process in the beginning, but doing it like that really speaks something to not only falconry, but like about yourself. Like, I, I mean, that is so cool that you kind of went through that, the hard part, right? Like the sucky part to get. Right. And I have always been kind of goal oriented. Um, I like, I like tracking my own progress and, you know, that could be seen as narcissistic or something maybe, but, you know, I do like accomplishing something. I like seeing progress. I like being able to look back like I said, I thought I was doing really good when I trained my second hawk in like five weeks, you know, and, and that was just me getting over my own fear of, of letting the hawk fly free for the first time. And then I can now this season, you know, it was three weeks and it really could have been a couple, which is unusual um, to get a hawk ready that fast. But I like seeing that. And I, I can look back like with my, first and second hawk i thought i was doing really well and i thought the hawk was trained really well but as i progressed through falconry and i got my fourth and my fifth hawk everything was a little bit smoother everything you know the hawk we were at point a in december with my first hawk we were at that point in you know early november with this hawk we were we were hunting and chasing game right away so i've I was just, I have, I've always been goal oriented and wanted to see that I'd accomplished something. Yeah, that's super cool. And, and uh, also, to say like, oh, go ahead. Before we go any further, I also want to make it real clear that when I talk about training and when I talk about my falconry, I am far from an expert far from an expert and no doubt if there's a falconer listening they're gonna say he doesn't know what he's talking about and that's you know completely possible what i do works for me and my hawks it it, we're every hawk i've had chases and catches game and that's um bare minimum of success if you do it with uh, a little style or if you if the everything goes smoothly and works out supposed to that's a plus but I've seen hawks that don't pay much attention to their falconer. They're kind of, they're what we call self-hunting. They aren't watching the falconer. They're going hunting and the falconer's chasing them through the timber. If it catches game, that was a successful hunt. It wasn't very pretty and <laughs> you know, it wasn't very, you know, to me, that's not a very enjoyable way to, to do falconry, but it, it was, it was a success. So, you know, I go out and I catch game with the hawk. Um, and I managed to do it without pissing the hawk off too bad. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And, and I totally hear you on the, um, like 
not being an expert and there's people who have been doing this a lot longer and they do it differently and all of that. But I do, I do appreciate where you're at, like in your journey with it. Um, because for people listening, I would say probably everybody listening for the most part has not done anything like that. And so this is going to be more relatable for so many people and to like, hear you be yeah, like this far. Cause to me, like, this is like, that is so cool that there's so many examples of things in life, like hundreds of examples, thousands of examples of things that can really suck in the beginning. And it's really hard to like get through and, and then it never really stops being hard work. Right. But you keep doing it and you find like love in it and enjoyment out of it. And, um, I think, I think that is like one of the coolest things, um, and the coolest part and like a really fun part about life. Right. Like, I don't think that's, um, it's like anything, like there's lots of good ways to do something and there's wrong ways to do it. But for the most part, there's lots of ways to probably train and work with your hawk. I imagine, you know, um, that, and I have no idea. Like, I really don't, I mean, I really don't know, but I imagine it's, it's like that. Um, and I I took so many notes and like wrote things down and I, I like, learned so much from this because I, you just, I just, I'm not in it and I don't know what I don't know. Um, and I just think it's super cool. Like what was the, what was the, like, was there something that happened that you're like, I'm going to give this a try. Like, was there something specific that made you want to go for it? Well, it started with, I think we did, we talked uh, you know, I had pigeons yeah the pigeons and so was it like and i got really sick i got a lung infection yeah. from yes. working yeah and and i know guys that were into falconry and pigeons so they you know, just, can, they just told I, you it was like a, a better transition like something else right. you could yeah okay i really have one guy to thank that kind of pushed me over over the edge his name's nick he's in up in connecticut and he said you know, I was telling him I, I, I had this, I had to sell all the pigeons. I, I can't do it anymore. And he said, he kind of gave me the, the confidence to actually do it. He said, you would be good at this. You know, when I'm with the pigeons, when you're flying pigeons competitively, he said, you're dealing with the same exact thing. You're dealing with um, regulating their weight their energy, their calories, you're training them. Um, you're doing all the same stuff. You're doing with a 120 pigeons in your loft, trying to keep all of them at a manageable weight where they can perform. You're doing the same thing with one hawk. He said, you know, you can, you can do it. You'll be good at it. Yeah. That's not the question. That's He said, there's no question about that. You have the the kind of any of this you, you have to have you have to be really driven to pay attention to details you know um with the hawk you know i'm measuring in grams in grams that's how you know that's how i measure my food that's how i weigh her so you're you have to be meticulous you know i'm keeping records yeah. of her weight and always trying to remember how she responds at certain weights and at certain, you know, weather conditions, because a hawk that's 1100 grams in 10 degrees 
is going to be a lot more hungry than that same hawk, 1,100 grams, when it's 80 degrees outside. She's not worried about a meal at all in 80 degrees. So he said, he, he told me, he gave me the confidence. And um, yeah, so I started looking for a sponsor. Very cool. That's awesome. And I, I wouldn't even, just, just because, I mean, it's probably common sense on some level, but I, for me, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even think that, um, like raising pigeons like that and com like competing with them would transition yeah. like that. Like I, I wouldn't even, I know they're birds, but I just, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't click that together without hearing that from you. And it makes, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and I actually weirdly like synchronicities are interesting, but I went on, um, I took some kids fly fishing or uh, trout fishing mm -hmm. in uh, Northeast Iowa. And we were on a private property and stream and, one of these like neighbor farmers just came by and like was talking to me and just out of nowhere, I had never, I never knew anything about this. I didn't even know this existed, had zero idea. He raises and shows pigeons like yeah. all over the country. And yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> and yeah. He started telling me about it. And I'm like, I, I am not surprised because I think there's so many wild things out there that people do, but like, I had never heard of that ever before um, until this year. So yeah. it's, it's kind of funny here in town, everybody, my pigeons fly in, they, you know, everybody knows me in town. Um, then they know I have a hawk. So like the, everybody in town just figures I'm like the bird guy, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll bring, you know, the damn baby birds to me in the springtime. when I keep telling them, just leave the baby birds alone, you know, and they think that I, you know, I don't even participate in bird watching. I couldn't identify any birds for you. It's not that they're birds. It's not that I'm fascinated with flight even because of those things. Yeah. For me, it's just, um, I wish I could tell you what it is I like about hawking, <laughs> but when I'm happiest, when I'm happiest hawking is when the hard work is done and my hawk has caught a rabbit or a squirrel and it was a pretty hunt, you know, the hawk knew that there's going to be a rabbit coming eventually, or, you know, it was in a good position and we're just out there in timber somewhere. And I let my hop up. I let her fill up uh, every time she catches something. A lot of people will trade their hawk off of a kill so that they can be ready to hunt the next day. You know, if the hawk eats too much, she's not going to fly the next day. So um, I just let them fill up every single time. And I'm just super happy sitting. You know, I ho hopefully there's a log or something nearby that I can sit on and watch her eat and just enjoy. Like, that's the, when I say goals and accomplishments, like, That's it right there. This is why I did, you know, starting at the very beginning with that damn hood that the hawk didn't want. This is why I did all that. And I'm super happy, super peaceful. And I feel like I accomplished something. And all I did was go stumble through bushes for an hour. Yeah, that's super neat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's super cool. And I, and I imagine like, I imagine there's people, you know, of the 50 in Iowa or the hundreds yeah. and thousands of um, folks that work with falcons and hawks, you know, there's probably a lot of them that have that, that 
that reason or that why is the same as yours, but there's probably some others that it's, it's deeper, like, you know, like flight or like right. fascination with birds or, you know, so many other reasons, like why might someone might be attracted to this and continue yeah. to do it. I mean, it's, it's super yeah. neat to me. There's for every falconer, there's probably another reason or um, a different part of it, a different part of falconry that they derive joy from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm sure for everybody, I, I there's see... probably a, a new reason. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm sure just like, just like dogs, you know, um, I almost think I'm, I almost think I enjoy I don't know. I'm kind of going through this right now a little bit, like, and, and I don't know how, um, I think I almost enjoy the training part more. Yeah. Um, then, which is bizarre for me because I love hunting. Yeah. But I think I actually might enjoy some of that stuff, especially when, when you first start with them, um, then the actual hunt with them. However, I was thinking about this earlier in the podcast when you talked about the relationship when I was asking you if there's like a bond there between you and the bird and um because I was curious what that might look like and I know they're different and like uh in their brains and how they react to things like dogs and and birds but and all birds are not the same and all dogs are not the same but what I find interesting I can think of two bird dogs in particular one I have now they're one now and one I had before and they're actually half brothers, but I can think thinking about it. They both listen to me. Like I had a bond with all of my bird dogs um, for sure. And like love them and love me and I'm their mom yeah. for sure. But there's two in particular that when I hunt with them, it's like a flip of a switch and they listen to me 10 times more when we're hunting yeah. And they make eye contact with me and we have a flow together when we're hunting that you wouldn't expect if you saw them not listening to me in the house, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's interesting. Like I was really relating that to, especially um, one of my first Britneys I ever had. I, this, this dog, I, I got him a little bit later like at 17 weeks old and um he's a little bit and he was a little naughtier you know but as sweet as could be just like the sweetest you couldn't really discipline him <laughs> he just like melts you know and I remember like the first time hunting with him and it was just like it was like magic I don't know how to explain it and it was always like that with him every time that yeah. he made this like intense eye contact with me. He hunted with me. He like kind of guided me. Like, like if I wanted him to go a certain way and he was kind of, he would kind of like almost make this, he'd stop and look at me and be like, no, you need to follow me. Cause the birds over here, you know, like it was very, um, it just yeah. flowed so crazy. And it was just, he wanted to do the job, you know, like we did this job together and it just like reminded me of that. Cause it wasn't like an emotional thing really, but it was just, it was, he was all business about it. And it was so cool. It was one, it's yeah. been one of the coolest experiences of my life. Honestly, it was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I wish that 
maybe falconry was a little more like that. I mean, you know, I have a dog and, yeah. you know, damn it. I love the dog there. I said, it. I love the dog. It's just the damn house <laughs> dog at this point. I love the dog. I can't say that I've ever loved a hawk, but, but there's something there. I guess the closest I can, the closest I can get to how I feel about a hawk is I maybe like your favorite shotgun or a shotgun somebody gave mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. and you say, I love that shotgun. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, it is love. And that's kind of how a hawk is. It's not a pet or a friend. Yeah. But you have like an admiration for them. It's you something that them. I do care about. And if anything yeah. happened to it, you know, he's devastated, first of all, because that hawk was my responsibility. But second of all, because it is something that I care about. It, it, yeah. it, it, it's something I care about. Yeah. Super cool. Well, and, and I just, even not the part that taking like the emotional part out of it, I think it's just, I think it's cool how living things figure out how to work together. You know, yeah. I just think, yes. I always think that's really cool. Um, you know, just doesn't yeah. have to be dogs, doesn't have to be dogs or like hawks, been, you know. Right. And hawks have been using humans forever. Like I said, I've seen them come into a, to a, a controlled burn, uh, you know, and I can guarantee you um, when Native Americans were setting fire to these same prairies, hawks were using those humans in those fires that long ago. You know, there's, there's, mm -hmm. it, it isn't like I treat, I, I teach my hawks to hunt. They know how to hunt when I trap them, but I'm yeah. teaching them that as long as they stick around, um, there's going to be food they will yeah. get cared for you know they, they'll benefit from it and 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 that's that's something special because every now and then it does strike me when i'm out hunting wow this is an actual wild animal even though it's tolerating me in the field yeah. it's still it's not from domesticated stock it's not like a cow it's not like a horse or a dog this is an, a real wild animal that we're at least co-op yeah no, I think that's cool. And, and I that's, think that's pretty like... powerful. Sometimes it still hits me. Like The first couple of times a hawk learns to skip ahead of me, I'm like, there it is. That's it right there. That's, you know, that's, that's, it's not just a goal or an accomplishment. This is significant. Like in the, in the grand picture, this is significant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's exactly what I mean. Like, it's almost, that's like, just nature. Yeah. <laughs> you know i don't know yeah. it's it's super cool it's yeah. super cool beyond words really um and sometimes it's like and every now and then, i don't know every now and then i'll be doing something with the hawk and you know hawks are really visually stimulated um you know their hearing their sense of smell i don't think is much better than humans their brain is dedicated to visual, you know, visual stimulation. So their eyes are always popping around. They're always looking at stuff. They're seeing things you can't even, you can't even grasp, you know, things far away, the colors you can't see. But every, every now and then that hawk will look at you and why the hell it's taking you so long to get a hold of that Jess or do whatever it is you're doing. <laughs> There's some recognition there, you know, it, it you know, cause it, 
our, our eyes rarely meet, you know, I mean, it's eyes are on my glove, if anything, if it's, if it's not hunting, actively looking at bushes and stuff, it's eyes on my glove. But sometimes there's that little bit of eye contact. And, it's, you know, sometimes I chuckle, I go, oh, there you are. Yeah, it's, it's me. Yeah, he recognized me. That is so neat. I am, I am so, I am so grateful for this conversation. Thank you. Like, thank you so much for agreeing to do this with me and talk about this. Like I, I, I thought this was great. And, um, I just want to say thank you. And I, I, uh, I hope that we like connect in the, in the future. Um, yeah. yeah, I just thought this was really great. Thank you very much. Oh, no problem. I, I just hope, um, I hope somebody finds something in here interesting, <laughs> you know, to, to me, it, like I told you in the beginning, I can ramble and I can get off on way, way far afield when I talk about falconry. Um, so oh, I, hope no. that, I hope that somebody enjoyed. Thank you so much, Albert, for being here and being a guest. We are so grateful to have you. And this was this was awesome. And I can't wait to get out there and see what one of your hawks can do. I'm so pumped for that. And I'll have to share about that in a later episode, hopefully. Thank you to all of you for being here. I love you. Until next time, get out there. <laughs>